Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome back to the Minority Money Podcast. Today, we are going to have a We Need to Talk episode. If you are not familiar with the We Need to Talk episodes, this is the time when we take a step away from the normal show and we have issues that we like to talk about. Today, we are going to talk about building generational wealth for all families. I'm joined by some wonderful, wonderful people that I can't wait for you to meet. But let me give you another update. Today, we are going to have this conversation moderated by a guest host, and her name is Sonia Dreisler. Sonia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So do I get to take over from here? It's all yours. All right, this is so exciting. Here we go. Well, hi, listeners. <laughs> I'm Sonia Dreisler, and I'm a author, consultant, and the co-founder of Choir, which is a diversity tech platform in financial services. And we today are going to have a long form discussion of a shorter panel that all of us got to have at a recent conference. And before I get into all the topics, I want everybody who's on to introduce themselves. So I know you know Emlyn. Should we start with Diana? Sure. Thank you, Sonia. So my name is Diana Yanez. I am a certified financial planner and founder of All the Colors. It was exactly a month ago that we were in Chicago talking about this topic. I focus on building generational wealth for all families through community coaching. And I'll hand it over to Fong. Hi, everybody. Thank you. So excited to be here today. My name is Fong Long, and I'm a certified financial planner. And I work with families across income and wealth spectrums. So I work with families with low and middle income, and I work with them on an hourly basis. And I also work with early inheritors, young inheritors, I should say, and I help them redistribute their inheritances and invest in private alternative community investments. And Emlyn, anything you want to add in introducing yourself? Not necessarily add to that, but just give a little more information about the We Need to Talk episodes, because I kind of just didn't talk too much about it. But we do have a, it's a series within a series that we do with Minority Money. and we always think it's important to do these and have this special time to talk about issues that we really think need to be spoken about. And I think that everyone is in for a treat today because this is going to be incredible. We had this conversation in Chicago, as the ladies had alluded to, and we had to continue the discussion. So I, that's all I wanted to kind of just throw that back in, in there and give it right back to you, Sonia. Great. All right, let's go. So today we're continuing our discussion or rather having a expanded fuller discussion about how planners are working on increasing the chances of generational wealth and well-being for all families. And specifically here, we're often talking about race. And so not just white families, but families of color as well. And currently, in the United States, financial security and prosperity are much more likely to be attained by white families. And so we're going to chat about that, why that is, the history, the current, and the roles that financial professionals play in building wealth and well-being for everyone. And 
course, we'll be talking about race here, which can sometimes bring up big feelings, especially for us white folks. So I want to do just a little bit of level setting here. We're not here pointing fingers or blaming. And there's not one simple solution or tool or trick that's going to fix everything. We're not going to cover everything in our time here, but we just want to get into some of the issues, give some context and give some resources to keep learning. So I do think for, since it's an audio podcast, it might actually be helpful to self-identify around race. I probably should have said that when we were doing introductions, but I'll just jump in and say I'm the only white person here. And so that's why I wanted to name the discomfort around chatting about race for white folks. And if anybody else feels like chiming in, you're welcome to. Yeah, I am Latina. I'm actually calling in from Oaxaca, Mexico. I'm Diana, Diana. And this is Fong, identify as Asian American, specifically Vietnamese American. I'm Emlyn. You might have seen me before on the the (laughs) podcast cover thing. I'm Black. (laughs) All right, cool. So let's start with the term that we've heard a lot, probably racial wealth gap. What does it mean? Where do we stand now and how did we get there? I know that's a lot. I want to kick it first to Fong, but then just open it up for a discussion for everybody to chat about. Thanks, Sonia. Yeah, I think we're all going to have a lot to say about this. So I'll start with talking about the term racial wealth gap. I think the term racial wealth divide or racial wealth divides, because there's different types of differences here with the, the different inequalities within racial wealth. Racial wealth divide covers the issue a lot more deeply. Because when we think of a gap, we think of a narrow space that you can just jump over. But the word divide, it brings us back to the reality that it's a really, it's a really institutional boundary. It's a really hard boundary, a lot of barriers in the way to actually solving. Not, I shouldn't say the word solving, creating more equality between between wealth. And so gap just doesn't really cover it. Yeah. And And I think for like for financial planners that are listening, one of the resources that I found really helpful to learn more about the racial wealth develop, I mean, a couple of resources, and one of them came to me from Fong, is The Color of Money by Marissa Baradan. That is a textbook, an economic textbook that made me cry, that might make you cry. Abacus Wealth Partners, they wrote a white paper called Two American Financial Plans. That is actually also really helpful and gives you like a lot of the stats and the history. And I love the call to action at the end of that plan of we really, as planners, we really need to do something more than just education, more than just like we need to be more targeted in the way that we serve different families. And as consumers, really what Fong said, like it's not a gap. It's not like there's like, like we can just hop on over the gap. It's a divide. There are things that are standing in the way and there are things that we can do. I mean, what Emlyn's doing through this podcast, through his work, through like, I love like the internship that he's doing. There's a lot of things that we can do. So Emlyn, if you want to talk about all everything you're doing to address this racial wealth divide. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think, first of all, absolutely spot on. It is a divide. It is not something, it's a chasm. It is a canyon, if you will. Like it's not something that you're just going to, you know, it's going to take time to get across and it is a far, far apart. So the things that we look at, like, you know, one of the things that we're doing is with the internship, we have the BLX internship, and that is to help aspiring Black and Latinx financial planners to get into the industry. Why? Because I feel like 
the way that we change this is we need more messengers out there reaching the families that are in this gap, right? So the way that we do that is we have to educate people on this as being a career. And then we also have Onyx, the support platform for underrepresented financial planners to help them start, scale, and sustain their practices. This is another method or another way to try to help um, impact the industry so that we can impact the communities that need the help and didn't have advice that was given to them before. So I think historically, we'll get into some of that. I don't want to steal that. So I'll give it back to you, Sonia. Yeah, that's actually where I wanted to go next before we get in a little deeper into details. I was hoping we could get a bit of a history primer here. How did we get here? Anybody want to volunteer for that? Yeah, I can set us up a little bit and give more of a context of what people typically think about when they think about financial literacy and financial history. And financial literacy is often considered the foundation of financial security. And the financial planning profession, our profession, is built on this model that financial literacy leads one to understanding how to use financial products and tools, which ultimately leads to financial stability and security. And absolutely, financial literacy and financial education and financial planning are absolutely important and can help individual families, especially our clients that we can work with. You know, we wouldn't be doing this in our profession if we didn't think we were making a difference. But what we see throughout financial history, bringing us back to the idea between a gap and a divide, is that the idea of financial literacy and the impact is actually flipped. So financial security, who deserves it and who must earn it, is determined by government and corporate policies which leads to financial institutions being built to enforce those policies of financial exclusion and inclusion. Then financial products and tools to implement those policies are created. And then once financial literacy is developed from having or not having access and experiences with those products. And we've seen this played out throughout US history. We'll kick it off to Emlyn to share some examples of that history. What we were talking about when we were there is we were talking about housing and we started in housing. And I think about how impactful purchasing a home is. And we recently went through the home purchase. We've actually just finished. We've been in our home for a month now. And I think about, you know, like we're talking about the lending and there's still lending discrimination going on. This is from 2019. Okay. They did a report in 2019. There's 2 million loans that they looked at. And people of color are still getting higher interest rates. People of color are still with the same credit profile as their white counterparts are still having higher interest rates, still not receiving fair and equitable lending. And you think about that and you think about how much lending or or how much the home that you live in becomes a way to create wealth. And it's not only just the home, right? Let's think about all the things that the home provides. And and I think about this as, as my grandparents, we still own our grandparents' home. This was until I bought my home. That was the only home we had in our family, my grandparents' home. In this home, because we lived there, we lived in a fairly decent neighborhood. The school district was good. The people that lived in the neighborhood, we had firemen that lived in our neighborhood. We had a police officer that lived in our neighborhood. And what happened was, over time, people moved out of the neighborhood. People sold their homes. People were able to get equity loans. People were able to make fixes. And people left that neighborhood and they went to another neighborhood. And when that happens is that asset grows. They sell that asset, they grow that asset, and they get to move to another place that's going to have better opportunities for schools, better opportunities for education, better opportunities for connections and people that you get to meet. 
And all of that plays a major role in the development and growth of wealth. I think that it's so important. I mean, I think when you go to the lending part of this and when we're talking to clients, you know, I think about the kids that lived around the corner in the apartments that never owned a home. I think about those kids and I think about, you know, my, my friends. And it was right around the corner for me and how different it was. And like, I remember them moving all the time. And I didn't know why they were moving. Rents change, this happens. And, and it was never to move somewhere. You know, most of the time it wasn't to move somewhere better. It was to move to somewhere worse because they couldn't afford it. And all of this insecurity that you get from not owning the home translates into not being able to perform in the classroom, translates into not being able to perform. You know, you can't go to school because you have to work because you have to help the family. There's so many different things that happen from someone that doesn't own a home and does not have the ability to purchase a home. So I wanted to just kind of touch on the, the human side of it because I don't like to, I mean, we can get into the stats and I can beat the stats to death. But at the same time, when you put that family there and you think about the kids or people that you actually know, then it makes it different when you put a face to that, when you put a name to it, you know, and this is what's happening from systemic things that the government's able to do to prevent an entire group of people from having things that shouldn't be denied from them. And that sense of security of having a home that's yours and it's you have control. I mean, to a certain extent, you have control over. I think it can't be understated knowing that somebody you know, as long as you can afford your payment on your mortgage and your taxes, somebody's not going to come in and kick you out of your house unless the government picks up on the, well, your house for eminent domain because they want to build something. But that feels like maybe we're going down a very specific course. But that does happen and happens, I would guess. I don't have a study in front of me, but it happens primarily to communities of color. Okay, Fong's nodding her head for those of you who can't see. But outside of that, the sense of control and stability that comes with having a home, it's just can't be, I don't think it can be understated, knowing your neighbors, knowing your community and knowing that you get to stick around and knowing how long your commute is or, you know, what school you're going to go to. Those kind of things are so valuable for well-being. Yes, there is still very much the discrepancy with what people of color will get as interest rates. And there's also the pain tax, right? Like if you're a woman, they often automatically give you a higher interest rate. And where did this come from, right? I have a background in population studies and I love seeing how this happened. Like there was the FHA loans that happened, the Federal Housing Administration loans that all went down in like the 30s and 40s. And what it meant is that if you were a veteran coming back from having served your country you were given better rates for mortgages if you lived in the right neighborhood and you lived in a better neighborhood. And this often meant a white neighborhood. So as a person of color, you're automatically disqualified from it. And think back to what, like, what was it like in the 1860s, 17th, 1870s? This is like 60, 70 years before that. The Homestead Act, if you were a white person and you went to unclaimed lands, and I'm putting in quotation marks, unclaimed lands, like unceded territories, you got to own those lands. And I'm not bringing this up to rouse up white guilt. I'm just bringing it up to like, it was government policy. It was systemic policy. It was part of manifest destiny, right? And we can make changes now. There are real policies that could be put into action. One of my favorite quotes is by Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. She's a Zen Buddhist monk. And she says that love and justice are not two. Without interchange, without me understanding 
that as a woman, as a person of color, I am racially profiled when I go in to get debt, to get an interest, whatever kind of loan I need. I won't be able to advocate for myself. I won't be able to have outer change. But without systemic change, without there being policies of transparency and the requirement that we all be treated equally, there's no change matters. I can advocate for myself as much as I want, and I do. But how will I make it easier for my daughters and granddaughters? They need to be part of the conversation. And when we as consumers advocate for ourselves, we need to think about how that's making it better for the future too. I love how real we're getting. This makes me really excited that we can talk about this. I just remember as a financial planner, when I started considering becoming a financial planner almost a decade ago, I didn't hear other planners talking about this openly as confidently as we can today. And I want to thank Emlyn and also the community of planners today for allowing and making us feel welcome, right? But Emlyn, especially for creating a platform to share these ideas in a really honest way. Because just our profession, again, we're built on helping others build financial security, whether or not their families and communities have experienced it before. And it's a really hard task because it's not just within our power and control. And it's not just within our clients and their families' power and control. Unfortunately, it's a really hard thing for me to say because I want to believe in personal agency and community agency. But at the same time, history has made it really hard. And we keep using the word history, but, you know, Emlyn and Diana have shared just really important statistics and facts based on current times. It's not just history. And when we decontextualize financial history from these historical and governmental boosts and blocks to wealth building, what happens instead is that we center the conversation on personal responsibility and individual behaviors. And it's not the whole story at all. And we're talking about individual home building and home buying, right? We've been talking about those examples. I love that example and the stories that you shared. And when we take a step back and look at the bigger community, it's whole communities that this is impacting, right? Based on segregationist policies that were real, that really happened. And when we think about community control in relation to individual control of housing, I've started digging into more into housing policies and, and laws related to housing and how important it is. You know, I've, we've learned about redlining. We've talked about it today too, but local control of housing and how local taxes are used, it's so concentrated in the hands of homeowners. And so when you have segregationist policies that allow and disallow some folks from building that home base, it's a whole cycle of not having control of what happens in your communities. And so we see so much disinvestment in local areas, local neighborhoods, hospitals, schools, parks, the types of buildings that are allowed or not allowed to build. And it's really a whole cycle. And so you know, bringing it back to our work, because we know that listeners here are both advisors, but also people who are interested in personal finance, thinking about not just individual wealth, but community wealth is something that I try to do as an advisor and talk about, right? That Because your balance sheet, your list of assets and your debts, expanding that to think about what assets and debts are in your community, right? What community wealth is available, like we mentioned with those facilities, those schools, those parks, those buildings. Some neighborhoods have more wealth than others, and not just at an individual level. And then often it is based on home values, and those high home values are usually correlated with high percentage of white home ownership. And then also like the health impacts, if you look at it, the communities where 
there's toxic air and communities that are prone to locally here, the Oroville Dam almost broke. Those kinds of things happen in communities that were historically redlined. We could put it in the show notes, but there's lots of maps that show the overlap between toxic air quality that can cause cancer and early mortality and all these things. They happen in communities of color, which are communities that were those redlined neighborhoods from earlier. I'm curious how each of you handles and maybe how you see your clients handle if you have suggestions. How do you take in all this information, knowing it's systemic, knowing that the deck is stacked against so many people can be heartbreaking and feel so challenging. So how do you keep going besides that you have no choice? (laughs) But how do you keep going in your work? And what do you say to the folks that you talk to, your clients, your communities, when they are also facing this, but still have to build wealth individually in the face of systemic discrimination and racism? There was actually an example that I heard of recently of prioritizing community well-being because that makes it easier for individuals to do well too. There's an example out of um, a city in Brazil that found oil. So 10 years ago, they found oil and they have a socialist mayor and the mayor was like, we actually want to get rid of poverty. We want to make the streets safer for our community. So they started giving everybody a universal basic income. Not everybody, but like if your income was below the poverty line, then you got a universal basic income. And now other cities around it are also instituting that kind of change. Because the reporter was saying in this article, it's like you walk into the city, and I forgot the name of the city, but it's in Rio de Janeiro. And you can tell the difference. The streets are cleaner. The parks are nicer. And it's just because people are not as worried about day-to-day costs. It's because they're not as worried about food. It's heartbreaking to see how Los Angeles has changed. Like this is a city that I've been visiting my entire life and Skid Row just keeps growing, right? I went to school in Irvine, which is south of Los Angeles in Orange County, which they often called the Orange Curtain because it wasn't like the Iron Curtain, like communism, not communism, but it was very much privilege, not privilege. You know, and growing up with that discrepancy as a white-skinned Latina, I get to live with that discomfort. So how does this work with my clients? I help them own their privilege. Like I mentioned right now, I'm white-skinned. Like there is privilege that comes with the way that I look. And then also where I've experienced oppression. I can remember my mom told me about my grandfather who was actually white-skinned, tall, had blue eyes. But because he was Mexican, there were signs where it said, no Mexicans, no dogs, no blacks. And that history is still present. What I do a lot for my clients is I just create a space where they can learn about finances free from gaslighting. Because when I can own the entirety of my experience, both the privilege of being born in the US and the history of how my family had to move here. When I look at Mexico and I look at all the violence here related to drug and not, not all of Mexico is like that, but it is part of it. Like the capitalist system that we've had for the past 500, 600 years, it continues to live on. I give my clients hope again by just giving them a space where there's no gaslighting, talking about personal responsibility, 
And I love working with people who then are working on systemic change. Like I know where my gifts are. My gifts are in one-to-one advising, community coaching, small interventions. And I love working with people who are then going on to make those other interventions. I feel like I'm kind of like a respite for them. I want to be a respite for them. The work is so big that wherever you are called to work is the right place to work. Song, how do you keep going? And what do you, what advice do you give to your community and to your clients? Absolutely. Yeah. And I just want to say that was awesome. Ah, so cool. So cool. Okay. So I work with clients. I mentioned earlier with clients across income and wealth spectrum. So I work with low and middle income clients, but also high income and high net worth clients, high financial net worth, I should say. And so the resources I have span across that spectrum. And I also train and write for and mentor advisors who want to do any type of work along that spectrum as well that leads to systemic change, right? With that understanding. And so one piece of advice I'll share for clients of low and middle income who are perhaps struggling or temporarily struggling with their finances and making ends meet is for advisors to be helpful by tapping into and creating a network for themselves, just like they would create a network of referrals to estate planners and accountants to create a network of referrals to community wealth providers, right? People who can help their clients get into public benefits, if that's something that's necessary. Locations of food banks, locations to mutual aid groups, emergency needs community centers, pro bono debt attorneys, pro bono estate planners, they exist, right? But it takes time and effort to make relationships with them and to develop a network like that. And I advise this to advisors who want to do pro bono advising as well. You have to create that network for yourself to really provide value to low and middle income clients because you're not going to be just like you can't serve all clients needs because you're a generalist, usually as a financial planner, you have to develop and find those specialists that you can refer to the clients for their more acute counseling needs, financial counseling needs, I should say. And then for clients who have wealth to give or redistribute or donate, whatever term they might use, we talk about reinvesting their money into direct investments in the community, right? And so both these examples that I'm sharing are either tapping into community wealth or using your wealth to build community wealth in places where it's less equal or less just. And so those are two things I would recommend. And also if you're giving, if you're redistributing, focus on organizations that are led by black and brown leaders and who have relationships really deep in the community are working with their community. Right? So focusing on all those things, I think as an advisor, but also as a, a client or someone who's managing their own finances, I think would help move the needle on systemic change. Emlyn, anything you want to add there? These are, so, these are amazing answers. Yeah, they killed that answer. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can talk about how I work with my clients and kind of what I talk to them yeah. about a little bit. As you know, it's Gen X Wealth. So we talk about building generational wealth. So every client is, we're having that conversation. The benefit that my clients get is that I've worked in mortgage lending. So when we're going through stuff, like we have those conversations about, you know, if they don't own a home, if it's something that they want to do, I walk them through the process. This is how much home you can afford before you ever walk in and see anything. We talk about what not to put on the application. I tell them never to identify their race on the application. I went through my loan application just recently, and I noticed that the person that was filling out my paperwork did not let me identify my race on the application. And I was like, this is something that I need to continue to tell my clients. Why is she doing that? She did it because of what we were just talking about. So we talk about that. The other thing that we talk about, which we haven't touched on today, is salary negotiations. 
one of the things that, you know, you think it, let's take a journey through the life of a person of color. You've told your whole life, you got to go to school, you got to go to school, right? So you go to college and if you can't afford it, then you have to get student loans, right? And so now you have those student loans and now you have to go get a job. And now when you go get your job, they're not going to pay you the same as everybody else because you're a person of color. So what I have done is we have negotiation guides where we talk about how to negotiate for a higher salary, always talking about that. So changing mindset, talking about the little things that the people can do to help themselves. And I think that the pay is a huge thing, right? Because if you just take $10,000 less, over a 10 year period, you know, that's a lot. And not only is it impacting you there, it's also going to impact you when you go to your next job, because they're going to ask you how much money you made. And when you tell them it's going to be less than what you should have been making. So it just follows you everywhere, unless you negotiate that up. And I tell everyone that always negotiate and ask for more every time, because you don't know how far that can set you back by not doing that. Cause you're also missing out on those, you know, you're also missing out on retirement dollars. If the company has a 401k, you're not able to put as much if you don't make as much. So just little, I say little things, but every little thing helps when there's this divide. Yeah. Those don't seem little either. Those seem huge. I worked in real estate escrow for about a year when I first moved to San Francisco because I couldn't find work in the field that I was interested in and kind of landed there through tenting. And it was not what I was interested in, but I learned so much there. And I didn't know that you could not put your race down until just now. Although that makes sense. It's just one of those things like a box that you check because it's there. But one of the things that I just didn't question before now, thank you for that. Thanks for sharing that with everybody. It sounds small, but that's not small. I do have one question that Fong suggested. Thank you, Fong. When did you realize how systemic the racial wealth divide is? Was there a moment, like an aha moment for any of you? I can share mine. Like, it's so funny because I knew it intellectually, but it wasn't until I was in the field where I, when I was working with high net worth individuals, it was the second week at my last firm and I loved my last firm, but it was just like, it dawned on me, like on my body, I guess, that none of my clients were of color. I knew it in my head, but it wasn't until day after day I was meeting clients. Yeah, there was just not a huge overlap between their community and my community. Yana, your experience brought me mine that when I started in financial services, I worked at a nonprofit providing financial coaching to people living in public housing. And it dawned on me that all of my clients were women of color. What's going on here? <laughs> and so I started delving into history. The second thing came up about a year after, for one year, we're doing that work. I saw an actual map of redlining, the actual map that was built by the underwriters. I think it was the Home Loan Corporation. I forget the exact name, but through the FHA rules, the actual outlines and which sections of New York City, where I'm from, were red and which were green and which were different colors, depending on where mortgages could be lent to in terms of sections of the communities. And then because I'm from that area in Brooklyn, I could see, oh, I know that neighborhood. I know that neighborhood. Wait a minute. And it mapped into all my understanding of the poor and wealthy areas that I grew up around. Emily, I want to hear yours too, but that reminded me, Fong, just now of that year that I worked in escrow, which was like 20 years ago. And I didn't really think of it until just now. When people were refinancing their homes, we would have to review their title statements, which would include 
any restrictions on the land, easements, if they had to let the public through for whatever, and a thing called CCNRs, like something covenants and restrictions that homeowners associations had. So this was 20 years ago. And then there's stuff on there that people were refinancing their home from 20 years prior. There were restrictions on the land about who could actually live in homeowners associations. And those would come up for me reviewing the escrow docs and including race. Like, you know, this is this community in California, in the Bay Area is only for white people. I mean, the language was more legal sounding than that, but that was the essence of it. And it wasn't enforced anymore, but the words were still there and it's so harmful. And a lot of the times the folks that I worked with and the mortgage folks were, oh, just skip it, you know, skip it. Like it's not enforced anymore. It's no big deal. I didn't have a lot of agency in that job, (laughs) but I couldn't believe that we were just going to skip that. Like just leave it there. Like it's no big deal. It felt terrible. And it's still there. It's in writing still in these inside of these homeowner communities, the homeowners association communities. Anyways, your anecdote reminded me of that. Thank you. Emlyn, was there a moment when you realized how systemic the divide is? I mean, it's like multiple times, but I'm thinking like through, I'm thinking right now when I worked at the bank, right? I'm a teller and I can see the people's money that come in. You know, I see the people that are on social security. I see the people that are, you know, business owners. I see everything because I was a merchant teller and it didn't really like, so I'm starting to see like, what's what, where these people live, how much money they make. Cause I can see their bank accounts. And I'm like, Hmm, there was not very many people of color that were doing well. And I was like, wow. So I started just kind of, and we had our financial advisors in the bank and they were all white men. And I was like, Hmm, what do they do? You know, what do they do? I didn't know what was going on. I just knew something was going on. And so then I wanted to get into when I got into financial advice. And then it was like, wait, all my clients were starting to look like me. I had a lot of minority clients. And I was like, why are they all coming to me? And I started looking around like they're leaving all these other people and they're coming to work with me. And I was like, I don't know why they're doing that. I don't get it. And so I started to look around, you know, because I'm really singular focused, like, I'm, you know, doing what I'm doing. And then when I finally looked up, I have this group of minority clients and no one else has this big group of clients and they're asking me all these different questions. So when I talk about the systemic part of it, I'm looking at it from the part of the lack of education. They were asking me questions. Emlyn, I don't even know what's going on in my 401k. I don't even understand how to pick my health benefits. Like, wait, can you help me with that? And I'm like, these are well-paid people. And I'm like, you don't understand that. These are like my friend's parents. And I was like, you don't get that, you know? And So I would look at more so because of all the systemic things that have gone on, the lack of financial education really hurts the ability to build that wealth. And I think that's when it started to click. And that's why everything that I do has been to try to change the complexion of wealth, because I see how deep it is. These are the people are good people. They just don't know. I'm curious if you think it, I mean, it's lack of financial education, but they came to you. And you're saying that like all these folks just happen to come to you and because you're a qualified planner and good at what you do. And also, do you think they came to you because they're more comfortable with you? And and like the flip side of that is, is there a discomfort or distrust from people of color or maybe larger communities that have been systemically disenfranchised, even if they don't know like all of the systemic reasons they know from their personal experience, this is not a group 
or an institution that takes my needs and prioritizes my well-being. So I'm trying to connect the dots there. And I suspect all of you can connect them better than I can. I can share something on that question. Another question was directed at Emlyn, but we were talking, like Emlyn brought up the point earlier about salary negotiation and like self-advocacy. And right now he was talking about education. And I'm going to connect it. Like as a child of immigrants, I saw my parents, how they were with white people, how they were in English and what they were like in our community, what they were like in Spanish. I think my parents always shrunk at least three inches whenever they had to speak English. So when you grow up with that, you don't even notice. You just think that's the way that you do it, right? And I think of like the first bank experience that I had when I was in college. And I, so this story, I had learned about Roth IRAs and I had put aside some money from like my part-time job. And I went to Wells Fargo and I asked them, could I open a Roth IRA? And the bank teller was like, you don't need one. And I said, okay, walked away for five years. I had no idea what an Roth IRA was. I had learned, I knew what it was, but I never thought to question them. And he didn't prioritize my $2,000, right? Whereas if younger me had come to me, if I had been in that position, I would have been like, oh my God, I'm so excited that you are thinking about a Roth IRA and that you are 19 years old. And I think any Latina, would have been excited for me or any black, I think maybe even a woman would have been more excited for me than he was. It's so nuanced. I love this work because all of the financial education and then me as a person, I need to be comfortable. I need to know that it's possible for me to question what I grew up with, but I don't have to shrink three inches when I'm talking to white people. And I, I mean, thank God my English is, doesn't have an accent the way theirs does. One thing I'll say too, what Deanna and Emily you shared, thinking about the term financial education, And I've never liked it because in the United States, education is believed to be such an individual endeavor that if you fail or succeed in school, it's up to you and it's your fault. I was a former teacher for about a decade before I became a financial planner. And it's not true. It's not the case. I've seen the research. Kids who perform better on grades and standardized testing, which really have taken over public education, do better depending on their zip codes. It's such a direct connection on where you live and how you do in school in the United States. So, Emlyn, your experience and how you talk about your clients with such sensitivity and understanding of what they're experiencing makes me think of, rather than financial education, I'm going to start using the term financial experience and financial access. Because it makes you think more about, you know, have your parents had a 401k? Did you see them going through those statements? Did you see them talking at the dinner table about retirement savings? Did they even have the ability to save for retirement, right? And I know not everyone gets financial education from their families or their communities because money is really still taboo in the United States for all the reasons we talked about today. But that local proximity to financial information soaks in in many ways throughout your life. And when you don't have family members or people near you who've had that, those financial experiences with the tools that exist for some people and not others, you're not going to get that same access to that information. Gosh, I could talk about this all day. This has been such a moving and broad and touching conversation. I guess before I hand this over to Emlyn to take over host responsibilities, is there a tool or a resource or a book or anything that you would recommend to 
either planners or individuals listening to the podcast today? What I use personally to keep myself engaged in this difficult work is I have mentors. I follow people who are doing work that moves the needle, that makes an impact. When I was asked to speak at Morningstar, I was really intimidated. I've never been a speaker before. The panelists were so incredible. It's incredible to be talking to you guys again. I reached out to Sandra Davis and I asked her, how do I do this? Why did they pick me? And what do I do for clients? For clients, it's like I encourage them to question what they've thought about money before so that they can start to move in the direction of full self-empowerment. Like those conversations that clients were having with Emlyn, they made an impact for the clients and for the client's children and grandchildren and neighbors. Any work that our clients, that even a white planner, when you're doing work with under a historically oppressed community, it is really important, beautiful work. So I think a lot about that. I think about the impact that I'm able to have and I make sure that I'm well supported by mentors. Resource that I'll share, there is a group called the Racial Justice Investing Coalition and we'll add a link in the show notes. It's a community of wealth advisors who are combating structural racism through finance. And so I've found a lot of mentorship and community through them. And as well, there's a group called Resource Generation. It's a group of young inheritors who are redistributing and reinvesting wealth to support a more sustainable world. And so I also get a lot of inspiration from their materials and webinars. And we'll also add a link in the show notes. I'd say mine is more like Deanna's being mentored and mentoring people. I think that's really how I can contribute and how I connect. Because I feel like it's always great to be mentored, right? Find someone to pour into you, but you really retain what you're being mentored about when you get poured into someone else. And so that's what I would say. I think almost like the reach one, teach one, or as my business partner, Desarte likes to say, push, pull. He said, you have a responsibility, you know, if you're in front of someone to pull them where you're at and to push the people that are in front of you. So I think that's how we push, pull our way out of this. And it's going to take a community, right? It's going to take the community. I love the beautiful example that you just gave Deanna about the city in, in Brazil. That's incredible. And I think I was reading, I believe it was The Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And he talks about this community where they were all taking care of each other. They would sit down and they would talk and they would spend time together, this community. I can't remember where it was at. It was in New York though. And it was just this community and they would eat together. They would do different things and all of them lived longer and none of them died from any health issues. They all lived long lives and just died from natural causes. It was crazy but it was because of the community. It was because they had time where they would talk to each other. It wasn't because they had a whole bunch of money. It wasn't because of any of that. It was the community that took care of itself. And this is what we need with the push-pull. The community has to push and pull itself and it'll take care of itself. And then you'll start to see the impacts, but it has to start somewhere. Wow. Well, I'll add one thing. These have all been so beautiful, but Deanna said something. She encouraged people her clients to question what they thought about money before. And I wanted to take a, a spin on that for white listeners. I could not have had a conversation like this about race, I don't know, like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe. I can't remember when I first started realizing that racial wealth divide or any racial divide was real. I just didn't see it before. I didn't see any of this. And how each of you mentioned your experience working in finance and seeing I, the, all the really wealthy folks were white. 
or the folks who are needing public assistance for women of color, I didn't see it, which is wild because I was in it. And, you know, it's hard to see something when you're a part of it. And so what I wanted to offer was a spin on what Deanna said. And instead of questioning, or maybe in addition to questioning what you've thought about money before for white folks is to question what you've thought or not thought about race before, if you haven't thought about it before, if you haven't seen what our panelists today have talked about, if you haven't noticed it, it's not likely that it's not there. It's just that it's, it may be hard to see when you're on the privileged side of things. And so to start looking and start listening so that you can see and you can hear. And I mean, podcasts like this one are a great place to start. There's lots of other resources. We can include some in the show notes. The 2050 Trailblazers podcast is another really good place to just listen. And if this is new, if thinking about race, talking about race is new to you as a white person, I would start with a lot of listening, listening to people of color, listening, especially to women of color and listening and learning. And even if the experiences that they bring up aren't those that you have understood before, it doesn't mean they're not real. Believe them, listen and believe. So that's my resource resources yourself. And now I want to pass it back to Emily. This has been such a pleasure. I could have a conversation like this for an hour every week, but I'm going to pass it back to Emily and let you take us from here. Well, thank you. Thank you. This was fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope the community enjoys it. Well, I know they're going to enjoy it because all of three of you are absolutely wonderful. And I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on and continuing this conversation. Sonia, for leading it. All of you have been just incredible. And to the community, like, please give us some feedback on this. Let us know your thoughts about this. We'd love to see, leave us some reviews about this. We will also, if everyone had, with everyone's permission, we will put all of their social media information in the show notes. So you can follow these lovely, powerful ladies. Because I think that when I look at all the stuff that I see on the social media from you, it lights me up. So I think that if I'm getting that from it, who wouldn't get that? Like everyone should be following you. So uh, matter of fact, I want to have you say it. I'm sorry. I do this on the show all the time. So we're just going to let you all just say it now. We're going to put it in the show notes, but I want to give you all the ability to share. So if you wouldn't mind sharing what social media is you're active on, where people can actually follow you and get more of you and what you're doing. It's all under my name. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. And sometimes I'm on Instagram. It's kind of sporadic. <laughs> uh, and my name's a little hard to spell. So I'll, I'll spell it out for you. And it's Sonia, S-O-N-Y-A. Last name is Dreisler, D-R-E-I-Z-L-E-R. So you can find me at Sonia Dreisler on Twitter, Instagram. And if you search that on LinkedIn, I'm there. And then on the business side, my business can be found hello choir. So the word hello and the word choir, that's the handle on those platforms as well. You can find me at my website is allthecolors.net for network. And that's all the colors, just the way it spells. And at the bottom of the website, you'll be able to find my social media handles. I don't have them memorized, but I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I think I like Twitter the best right now. My website is justwealthplanning.com. And I'm on Twitter occasionally, and my Twitter handle is P as in Peter, T underscore long. So last name is L-U-O-N as in Nancy G. Notice how I use 
other names to describe the letters. <laughs> so it doesn't make sense to say P as in Fong because it sounds like an Awesome. Awesome. So now you can follow these ladies and see what they're doing, keep up with the work. And once again, I want to thank all of you for the work that you do and for spending some time with us here on the Minority Money podcast. As you all know, this special episode was a part of the We Need to Talk series. And as you know, this is the Minority Money podcast where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Until next time, I'm your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast, so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here and until next time.